On this week's episode of Script and Style, I talked to Todd about taking a side project and making it a booming main business. Welcome to the Script and Style Show, the web show where we talk about web development with the people that make it happen. Today's episode is brought to you by TrackJS JavaScript Error Monitoring. Know when errors hit your website with the context to find and fix bugs fast with TrackJS. Start your free trial today at trackjs.com. Welcome to the Script and Style Show. I'm Todd Gardner from TrackJS and my co-host, David Walsh, creator of the popular blog, davidwalsh.name. How's it going today, David? I'm great, man. How are you? I'm good, good. All's well. All's well in the world. Well, all's not well in the the, world. Not in the stock market, certainly not. Yeah, and not in, you know, pandemics and travel and all that. But we're not going to let any of that stuff get us down. We're going to keep on going. Right. So I know, like, behind the behind the curtain a little bit, Todd and I have talked stocks. We've talked uh, <laughs> we finance talked stuff. Before, yeah, yeah. Right. So what do you, how are you holding on right now with the, uh, with the stock market? What's, what's well, going on? So... As Warren Buffett says, when the market is fearful, be greedy. So lately, I've been being greedy uh, with the market correction going down and saying, putting some more money in and seeing what I want to buy. And I've been playing a little bit with options trading, you know, entering the, the world of big finance, which I feel is still, you know, frankly, a safer bet than cryptocurrency. Okay. <laughs> I mean, because there's still a real underlying asset that does something and not just you know, whatever. So for, so maybe for those who don't know, like discuss what options trading is. Oh, there, I mean, we could talk for hours about it. It's a cop. All right. So, so there isn't, there's an underlying asset, like a stock. All right. Now trading an option isn't trading that stock. It's trading a contract that like at some future date, I am entitled to either buy or sell that stock at a predefined price. And so essentially you're betting on whether or not the market is going to go up. And so buying it at a different price than what it is today is going to be a good idea or whether it'll go down and buying at a price cheaper than what it is, is going to be a good idea. Um, And you don't actually ever have to buy the fundamental stock because you're trading with other people, just the contracts that say you have the right to do it. And so the swings in these options are, can be much more volatile than the market itself, which means right. that you can make a lot more money a lot faster. But being that you're really only trading the option, the, this contract that says you have an option to buy something means that if you're wrong, your maximum loss is only what you paid for that contract. So for, okay. exa- so for that, example, that makes sense. one that of makes the things sense. that I've always been super worried about, like there's been times when I've wanted to short stock before. It's like, ah, I think Tesla's overvalued. I want to short it. But when you short stock, you have an unlimited amount of downside. Right, right, right. Because right, right. if that stock you know, takes off, you're, you can be out a lot of money real fast. I don't have the courage to short a stock. <laughs> Where with options, you can short a stock, but limit your downside because you're saying, all right, I'm going to pay let's say $500 to say that I'm going to say that Tesla will go down by this percentage by this date. And if I'm right, I get, I I get to essentially sell Tesla at, uh, at the high, at a price higher than what it is. And I get to make a bunch of difference money. But if I'm wrong, all I'm out is my $500. It's my maximum loss. I can never lose more than that. Right. So it, it has some interesting ideas. See, I have beef with Warren Buffett saying he'll never own crypto. And I'm like, dude, you're a kajillionaire. You know, you're 89. It's not like you have this massive future to look forward to. Ageist, I know. But when he said that, I was like, okay, buddy. You're, you're, <laughs> you know, I don't need you. I don't need you sending those signals. But anyways, that's really cool. I think that in the future, we should have some sort of financial something episode. I think because that'd be a, fun, yeah. A lot of people, a lot of the people who are just getting into the industry, I feel, have at least come and said to me, 
like, yeah, I don't really know what's going on with my retirement. I'm like, you need to, the sooner you know this, the better, right? Yeah. So I, I think it would be helpful. But yeah. anyways, we're going to talk about something different today. Oh, yes. So I really admire you in that you've put together TrackJS. Um, you took something that started out as sort of a side project and it became, you know, the business that, that you run today. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk to you about that because I think a lot of people would be really excited if they could take one of their side projects, whether it was doing well or was popular right now or in the future and make that their full-time job. I think that a lot of people would see that as their dream. So I thought this would be a good discussion um, to pick your brain, tell us a story a little bit, some ups and downs and just sort of roll from there. I love it. It's my favorite topic. Okay, cool. So let me start out with this. When you had started working on um, you know, just the very beginnings of TrackJS. When did you realize that this could become a business, that this was going to be successful enough <laughs> to go for it? Um, it wasn't for quite a while, actually. Um, so at the time when, when we had this idea uh, for an error monitoring service, we were um, contractors. So we worked at various large companies in the, uh, in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And everybody, it was like, uh, we were ramping up the hype cycle around JavaScript client-side apps. Right. Uh, the era, before, the era, before you go forward, though, I would just clarify, when you say we, you have two partners. I do. Two people that were working on it with yeah, you. Yeah, so there were other people working on it with me, and we were all in kind of a similar situation. But like, so... I was an independent contractor. I worked on JavaScript projects for, you know, big fortune 500 companies. Um, And it was the era where everybody was starting to build big client side applications. Backbone JS was kind of the dominant player at the time. Uh, Angular was starting to ramp up. Knockout JS was still a thing. Um, I don't know if anybody remembers any of these terms, but this was like the frameworks before the current generation like the ones before React and the ones before Vue. Um, And as we started building out these large client-side applications, uh, we, like this problem of like, hey, all of these things kind of break in similar ways and we have no good uh, instrumentation to know what's happening. And that's where the idea came from. But when we started building it, like we foolishly thought that like this wasn't, this wasn't a standalone thing. This was going to be something like when somebody hires me as a contractor, I'll just be able to have this code that I can like just bring along with me. It'll be a value add. It'll get me more contracts. It'll let me charge a higher rate. It'll do those sort of things because I'll have all this free work to bring along with me. Um, And it wasn't for several months of work that, and, and like shopping it around to people that it kind of got beat into our head that like this was valuable kind of on its own, just independent of us. We could run it as a standalone platform and people would sell, send us data. And uh, we had a, a, a network of a handful of other uh, like software developer founders in the area that really pushed us into it and, and put like wrote us a check for the first month of service. And like, here, this is valuable. I want to use it. Like, let me use this here. Here's some money. And so it was really kind of our, our customers and our mentors that pushed us into it. It wasn't any brand like grand vision of our own. That's really cool. Uh, and it's also, I guess, lended well to you being an independent contractor that you didn't have to um, just like up and quit one day and say, I'm doing this now. It's something that you could sort of slide into because you already had a little bit of power in what you worked on and when due to your contractor situation, right? Absolutely. So I was, I had um, a, a situation before TrackJS that was set up that made this, this easier to do. And, um, and I don't know how common uh, this kind of setup is, but it's really common in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, that when you hit like a certain level of seniority in software engineering, a lot of people become independent contractors, which means we create our own company, uh, a limited liability company for ourselves. And a recruiter will basically 
have relationships with lots of independent contractors and place us into jobs and they will take a cut of the hourly rate. Usually like either it'll be $5 an hour or $10 an hour or $20 an hour or a percent, like they'll take 10% of your rate or something like that in exchange for finding you the job and placing you and that sort of thing. And so that there's a lot of people that do this. Um, and the advantage of that is one, you already have like a safety net set up for yourself is like being that you're independent, you have to secure your own health insurance and secure your own retirement and right. save for your own vacations. Cause if you're not working, you're not getting paid. Right. Um, you have to have all of these kind of things in place, which, you know, help you do other things. And because it's just a straight, I'm trading dollars for hours situation, I can vary the number of hours I work uh, fairly easily. And so that enabled us that as TrackJS grew and generated more revenue and more interest, we were able to ramp down the number of hours that we would spend contracting. And so we had a very slow like conversion between the two uh, that enabled us to basically fund ourselves as we grew the business. Cool. So talk me through the sort of discussions between yourself and your partners um, where you said, we aren't going to contract anymore. This is our full-time gig. And did that happen for everyone at the same time? Okay. So no, it did not happen for everybody at the same time. So at different points in time in the history of the business, uh, different members have contributed different amounts of time. And so uh, in order to, to basically compensate ourselves for that, uh, the ownership of the company slowly drifted towards whoever was contributing more time and effort at the time. So like when we started, it was a, it was a, an even split between the partners. And then for a number of, uh, a number of months, I uh, intentionally took my hours down to 30 hours a week for contracting and was spending a lot more time on TrackJS. And so for that time, I was accumulating more ownership in the company. And so, uh, uh, as the company started growing, my ownership kept growing. And eventually it came to a conversation where this is getting close enough that I want to drop my hours from 30 to 20 and go up again. And it made sense for the company and it made sense for me. So we did that. Um, Eric, who is uh, uh, one of the original co-founders uh, and like the CTO of TrackJS, he was like maybe- Also, m most importantly, friend of the pod. Fund, friend of the podcast, he was about six or nine months behind me. So uh, six or nine months after I went to 30 hours, he went to 30 hours. Um, and then it was basically a trajectory of 30 hours, 20 hours, full time is kind of how, how it went. Um, and so Eric and I went first, uh, Jordan, who's our uh, the third guy, uh, he came along last uh, kind of as the distributions as your as your income from TrackJS could uh, could replace your contractor salary, it enabled everybody to slowly move over. But nobody nobody ended up ever taking like a big financial risk. Like at the time they dropped their hours, their share of of TrackJS earnings um, made up or like more than made up for the, the loss that they would have from taking less money. So maybe that leads to another kind of weird conversation uh, is that TrackJS doesn't pay salary. TrackJS is like, acts like a law firm in that there's three partners. The company generates money. At the end of every month, we take the money and we say, all right, here's how much money we made. Here you go, here you go, here you go. 100% like profit sharing. So sure. like. It's not, it's not an hours for dollars exchange at all. It's you own this much of the company, the company generated this much money, here you go. And, and that's your, your distribution. And so everybody is just highly incentivized, just completely incentivized to grow the business because it's the only way any of us earn money. Sure. Okay, so let's jump backward to when you personally made that decision to go from 20 hours contracting to full time. Yeah. Tell me about the holy shit that happened. That, that, like, was, like, that was a scary moment. So, yeah. so at that point, which at this point was like three and a half years ago, um, 
I had been like, I'd been remote for some time now. The, the 20 hour a week contracts that I had, be, had been doing were mostly remote work. Um, and so the transition was really that I'm going from pulling in these two different sources of income. One is super reliable trading hours for dollars. I can find a contract. I know how much this is going to be. And the other is some months are awesome and some months are a little less, <laughs> less than, than I would have needed. Um, and by saying, all right, I am going to ditch this really safe income stream and depend solely on this one was, was scary, but I had been planning for it. So for a long time, I had been pulling in these two income streams and I had been saving tons of that, basically accumulating my own runway. Right. So that if, if the, if the, um, there's banging in the background, what's going on? Sorry, my wife came in to get something. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, so I had these two income streams coming in and I accumulated enough runway that I basically was confident that I could run for six to 12 months on savings, on, on what I had pulled in. Um, and that was the, oh shit, what if, what if this blows up? What if this doesn't work out kind of money? Right. Um, and so I had, I had that safety net going for us. Um, and so when it actually came time to stop, it was scary, but it was a little bit of a relief. It's like this thing that we've been planning for for a long time, it's here. And I can work 40 hours a week, which is awesome because for a long time I, I had been in a pattern of working 60 hours a week. And now I can work more on TrackJS, but I'm only working 40 hours a week. And it was, right. it felt like I was going on vacation. It felt like, <laughs> oh, this is, this is a lot easier. This is a lot easier when I don't have to do one job, come home, spend some time with my family, and then go to another job, uh, which is what the, the growth phase of TrackJS had been, um, which might have been a mistake, but we were trading our time for like financial security. How did you slide into, I guess, uh, a routine of this being your primary, primary job? Uh, because, you know, when, when Eric joins full time and then, you know, you grew to three, you have time for meetings now and you don't just have time for meetings, you need meetings mm -hmm. and you need to sort of, um, create your own culture, I guess. How did you, yeah, how did, yeah. how did, how did that work out? So from the very beginning, um, when all of us were working full time on other jobs, we knew we needed to like work together and, and keep up to sync, but we had no common hours, right? Like people would find hours in their week where they could and everybody had different life schedules. Um, and so at the beginning it was, uh, it was Tuesday nights is, was our meeting. So at Tuesday at 8 PM, uh, we would jump on this call and we would go through our plans and our board and kind of figure out like what we were going to do for the next week and who was going to work on what. Um, and we always had a chat room as well that, uh, that we'd use for like ad hoc stuff throughout the week. Um, but that's how we kind of kept ourselves up to date uh, when people were working, you know, just 20 to 30 hours a week kind of on their side time. As we grew and as uh, we started putting more and more time into the business, uh, that, that weekly meeting shifted around and it grew and it changed in what we talk about a little bit, but we still keep that today. So it's, it's Friday afternoons now. It's, it's how we end the week. We close out our week by having a meeting and talking about what we got done and what our plans were for next week and that sort of thing. Um, but we do a handful of other things throughout the week. Um, very few things are scheduled though. It's more of we'll jump on a call to talk through something. Uh, but most of our, our meetings happen, you know, kind of planned in chat. Hey, I'd like to talk about this. Can we jump on a Zoom together? Cool, let's do it. Boom, done. Um, one of the things that we kind of discovered along the way though was that when we were, when we were working uh, on contracts, um, there was like a stronger sense of, of a mission 
that we were on is we were all like suffering together kind of evenings and weekends and, and had this shared heartache kind of thing. And as that has diminished, which is great that we don't have that anymore, it has started shifting into a job. And as with a job, sometimes you just, you know, you have friction with your coworkers and you, you know, especially because even though we all live in the same community, we don't see each other. Like we live far enough away that we don't actually like see each other very often. And so we needed to have FaceTime. We needed to have time to get together and bullshit and like build our relationships with each other and maintain them so that we would work together effectively. Right. And and so what we basically decided is every two or three weeks we have a board meeting. And what a board meeting is for us is we go to a bar or a restaurant and on a Friday and we just have our weekly meeting and we spend usually two hours having a good meal and some beers and talking through everything that we need to talk about and bullshitting about the stock market and about what's going on in the world and our kids and our families and everything like that. And it, it resets us. It keeps us, it builds the relationships in our, in our small business so that we can be productive on top of them. And so that, that was one of the things that I actually wasn't expecting to have that problem because we're, we're a remote company, but we're local and we know each other. Right. And we've met each other and we've worked together side by side, but you still, we've still found that we need that real social interaction to keep us productive at least every couple of weeks. So from a, you know, looking at how things work at a, at a larger company, they set you up with insurance. They set you up with retirement, um, you know, all the other benefits. How, 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 like, how does TrackJS handle that side of things? Do you all have to get your own type of insurance? Like, how, how do you handle the revenue coming in and then, I guess, paying out? Like, these are things that are super important um, as both an employee and an employer. And since you're sort of both, mm-hmm. how did you sculpt the, the business side out? Um. Well, so every business kind of grows differently. And so the nature of TrackJS, it very much reflects our slow growth transition from contractors to, to partners in this. And I would say that the closest um, parallel to how TrackJS works as a business is a law firm, um, is that we are uh, a handful of partners that work together on this shared product, but we're also independent in that all of us have our own uh, LLCs. In some case, I don't even own TrackJS. My LLC owns a portion of TrackJS. Oh, okay. And then I own my LLC. Um, and it's set up that way because my LLC, which I use for contracting, already has those things in place. It already buys life insurance for me and my family. It already buys disability insurance. It contributes to my retirement fund. It does all of these things already. And so it was just financially simpler to just have, you know, change that income stream from, you know, it used to come in from contract dollars and now it comes in from TrackJS distributions. Um, And not everybody is set up the same way. Like everybody's financial situation is a little different. Uh, And so, uh, some, uh, some of the partners own their shares directly, others pass them through their LLC. But TrackJS as a business is not responsible for that. Like TrackJS just pays you a distribution and you're responsible for your own everything. Like you have to secure your own health insurance, your own life insurance, your own everything. But at the same time, TrackJS doesn't have to pay um, uh, taxes directly because it doesn't do a payroll. And okay. so you are also responsible for your own taxes. At the end of the year, uh, TrackJS, we, we do the taxes for TrackJS or file them. And it says, all right, here's how much taxes we owe on, on the money. And here's your share that you now have to pay on your K-1 okay. form or whatever. Sure. Um, and so in one frame, it, like, it greatly simplifies the TrackJS organization, but it puts that complication on all of us individually. Um, and the reason we we opted for that approach is because we are already doing that. Okay, it, cool. It, it gives us like individually the independence to 
kind of make our own choices on what we want to do, how much we want to contribute to different things. Um, whereas if it was the company doing, we'd have to like come to some sort of joint decision on what we wanted to do. That sounds like a really good setup. It sounds like the, the whole idea of being a consultant beforehand helped you sort of slide into this big new thing without too much friction around, um, yeah. you know, some of the stuff we've talked about, we've spoken about. So we talked about how becoming full-time track JS was sort of like a, Oh my God, sort of thing. When did you hit the point, or I should say, have you even hit the point where you were like, we got this, like, this is, you know, yeah. where, where did you get to the other side where you felt safe and you were doing the right thing and that, you know, you were sort of in the clear, I guess. So I, th I think for me, that point came sometime early last year. And that was when Jordan, who is um, uh, uh, the third partner on TrekJS, when he made the decision to go full time and give up his contracting income. And that meant all three of the partners were solely relying on TrackJS for money and had enough confidence in our revenue stream. And there was enough history behind our revenue stream and our growth and all the numbers to power it, that, that we were going to bet on it kind of for a significant period of time. Um, that's when I feel like, like we made it. Like, uh, regardless of like the market pressures, because you know there's other things that happen in the market. There's other tools that kind of operate in our space. Um, we felt like we won because we were this this going concern, this company that was like indefinitely sustainable. We weren't ever going to get sold off to anybody else. We had complete control of our future and. Um, and we, and it was stable enough because we had enough, uh, a broad enough customer base that it was stable. Like we felt like this is safer than contracting at this point, because any one of our clients could have a bad quarter and lay off contractors. Whereas it would be incredibly unlikely that a sizable portion of our customer base would all quit at the same time. Right. Uh, and so we felt like this is just this is stable, this is growing, this is something that we can depend on, and this is something that is, is, um, is easy, not easy, is, is fun. Like we're working with people that we immensely respect and trust, right? It's that when, when Eric or Jordan say they're gonna work on this and they're gonna go take it, I have no doubt in my mind that they are just going to kill it, that they, that they know exactly what they're doing and they're just going to like make that thing happen. And when you get to a team where you just have complete trust and complete faith that everybody else on is totally pulling their weight as hard as they can and they're going to do a great job, work becomes easy in a way. Like the work itself is not hard to do. It's figuring out what work you need to do. That's a little bit trickier, but doing the work is easy and you feel like you're going in the right direction. And I, I really felt like we'd hit that moment uh, early last year. And, and I think we're, I mean, we're still there. Awesome. That's really cool. It's, it's, I'm happy to hear you say that because <coughs> a lot of times, you know, things can go the wrong way and it's, and it's good that you got to that point. With the benefit of hindsight, are there any things that you look back on? Because again, no one really trains you to open your own business, right? Mm -hmm. You just, it just happens with the benefit of hindsight. Is there anything that you think you could have done better that might save our listeners from, from, you know, going the wrong way if they start their, their own business? Um, yes, there, I mean, there's a lot of lessons, um, that I think I could draw out and, and things that I will do next time for the next business that I start. Um, some of them are around people. Um, I think it was really important and really part of our success that TrekJS was a partnership and not, not just me or not just one of us trying to go off and start it because at the beginning, there's a lot of dark times. 
there's a lot of times when like things aren't going right. There's not enough money for what you're doing. It feels like the competitors are giants and squashing you into the dirt. Um, there's a lot of times when you just feel like you want to give up and quit and it's not worth the time and the stress and the heartache for it. And having partners is what get you through that. It's what lets you say, fuck it, I'm walking away for a week or two. See ya. And because there's a partner there keeping it going, there's something to walk, to come back to. Yeah. When, when you've like got, got your burnout like dealt with your burnout and now you're ready to like think about it again because it, it happens a lot. Like starting a business is an emotionally intense process. Like you're building something. If you were, if you like all developers that I know kind of get this to some extent where they become emotionally invested in this thing that they're building. Now take that and, and multiply that feeling because there's fewer other people to, to like blame the parts that you don't like on. It's all you, it's all your decisions, decisions you made. Some of them are bad decisions. Some of them were, we gotta get this out decisions. I know this isn't great, but we gotta launch this decisions. But you made that decision. And then you put it out there and somebody will say it sucks. Somebody will say it's not as good as X. Somebody will say I could build a better thing in the weekend. The comment section. Yeah, yeah. Except it's just flowing at you all the time. Like it's right. happening on Twitter. It's happening in your inbox. It's like people are evaluating your, your product for their own needs. And they're, they're not doing it to necessarily be mean. I mean, some of them are. But most of them are just trying to give you feedback on what they're thinking and why they are or they are not going to go with your product. And it's very hard not to take it all personal. Um, and so partners allow you to basically when it all gets to be too much and you need to walk away from it, they can, you know, keep the business afloat, keep momentum happening uh, when, when you just can't, can't deal with it anymore. Um, people like the, the three people that were, that are on track yesterday are not the same people that, that were on it when we originally started. Um, some people just weren't a good fit for what we were we were trying to do, they didn't bring the right, or they didn't have the right skill set or the right attitude or whatever. And that's fine, not, not everybody's is, is right for this kind of work, um, but making those decisions as early as possible and as fast as possible, I think is good. Uh, in, in one case, I kept somebody on longer than we should have um, before like dealing with it. And it really kept us from going as fast or as, as well as we could for, for some time. Right. Um, the, um, on the technical side, we have some kind of strong opinions about how things should be done for a startup um, that run a little contrary to, to popular tech culture and popular tech wisdom. And a lot of times we feel like we're wrong, but all of our direct evidence shows how right we are. And they deal with taking dependencies of any kind on our platform is having as few dependencies as possible is what is what has really worked well for us and anytime we take a dependency to try and go faster nine out of ten times it has burned us and we have needed to pull it back out um, because when you take a dependency like let's say for example um, you're trying to figure out uh, what platform should you build your technology stack on, right? So there's like lots of clouds you could build it on. Uh, you know, you could use like the big players like Microsoft, Google, and Amazon, or you could use one of the smaller players, or you could use a like a serverless kind of setup, or you could build a bunch of stuff yourself. Right. And a lot of people will run to the cloud platforms because they're fast to get started. You have to build less things. And those are all true. Those are all true. But what you're giving up is control and you're giving up visibility because when something goes down, you have no idea why it's just down. It's like, it's my service is offline. This, my, my core business is now offline. Right. I'm sorry, customers. My business is offline and I don't know what's wrong and I don't know when it'll be back. Sorry. And that's just not, 
a really good look. No, no, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> and, uh, and it happens like a fair amount um, that like part of one of these cloud providers will go down or it will change its behavior in some subtle way uh, because it's a really complex system of things, right? Uh, and so when we built TrackJS, uh, we took advantage of that speed to delivery. We built the first versions of the system on Microsoft Azure. And the thing that we lost, or after about two years of growth on that platform, we, like that, that trade-off of speed to visibility just stopped being worthwhile to us. Like we had a thing, people depended on us, and we needed the control and the visibility to know what was going on. And so we moved off of that platform and uh, leased servers directly so that we knew what was going on, we knew what was going to need to happen, and we could um, automate a lot of, a lot of that in, in the same ways. Modern infrastructure automation gives you almost the same benefits as clouds. Like a lot of the benefits that people attribute to clouds are the same things they could do if they just modernize their infrastructure. Sure. Just, they're, 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 they're not doing a fair comparison. They're comparing their 10-year-old Windows server that runs, runs under Frank's desk to AWS. And it's like, well, that's not, that's not really fair, man. That's not, that's not what the, the debate is. And so this is, this is one example. But like we've done it like lots of times where we've outsourced to a particular service to handle something for us, and it kind of burns us, and we end up you know, building it ourselves. So we've tried to do as much of it ourselves as we can. Um, obviously there's some things that just don't work out. Like it doesn't make sense to run your own mail server because it's a really hard problem to solve and it's really cheap to pay somebody else to do it. Right. Um, but in a lot of other cases it does, it's, it's a trivial thing that you can build yourself. And when you put a dependency on somebody else, that's somebody who can take you down. That's somebody who can like break your system or cause you unexpected work when they want to change their API. I think that's a, that's a really cool attitude to have. And it's, and it's one that I'm sure you develop as you become a business owner is I'm going to do it. And I like, I can't rely on someone else to, to do things for me. Like now that this is my main income, now that this is my reputation, um, it's on me. And I think that it's really awesome to see yourself and your partners have that attitude. I think one of the important differences that led us to this is like, kind of having a plan and a set of values of what we wanted out of the company from the beginning. Um, TrekJS was never intended to grow um, from a team perspective. Like we have no intention of hiring more people. We never wanted more people. We want a core group of partners. Onboarding and, off and offboarding a partner would be a lot of work. It'd be very, very difficult for somebody to join or leave the organization. We'd have to do a bunch of like legal stuff. Um, and we built it kind of that way because, or because that is the structure of our organization, we optimize for that. So there's only three of us. We want to spend as much of our precious time adding value to our, to our company, like building things, helping customers, uh, adding valuable features, stuff like that. We want to spend as little time as possible, like cleaning up, like dealing with garbage, right. dealing with like, oh, you know, Slack changed their API again and they're deprecating this API. We have to update a bunch of code to like make that work. Right. Um, and anytime you take on those dependencies, you create like this subtle promise that like you're going to do some of their work to keep that that integration functional and you don't always know how to plan it. Whereas if you build it yourself, you can plan it. You can decide when it's time to upgrade, when it's time to add more features. So kind of having that in mind that we are a small company, we don't like doing um, like a bunch of maintenance housekeeping led us to decisions and architectures that minimize that maintenance. We don't want to do it. So we design our systems in such a way that um, minimizing maintenance time is one of our primary goals. That's cool too, um, because the longer that you're doing maintenance is, is sort of the less you can be doing of adding features and, and like pushing things forward. Speaking of um, 
we talked a little bit already about like the the quote-unquote HR side of things and you needing to handle you know your own insurance and so on and so forth um, your company is also really sort of cool and unique in that it was started or I should say it's run by three software engineers right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but that also means you don't have a sales team so you know, how do you handle, you know, that, that little important thing of getting people to pay you? <laughs> like, yeah. how, how does that work out in a, in a small business like yours? Again, three engineers. So I think this is largely dependent on who you are trying to sell to. So because we are trying to sell to developers, to web developers, I don't think not having a sales team has been a hindrance on us because developers hate salespeople. As a rule, they, sure. they, they dislike them and they distrust them. And usually you can smell like they're not, they're not very good at disguising themselves, right? Like a salesperson, you know they're a salesperson. Like if you're at a developer conference and you talk to somebody, you know they're a salesperson within the first 30 seconds. Sure. They're like, they're kind of slick and they're well-spoken and they, you know, maybe have like these little gaffes where it shows that they don't really understand the fundamental technologies. Right. And you just kind of, you know, and you don't, and you, you'll politely listen to them, but you don't really trust them. And they just spam email you and they like all of this general sales practices that to this day, if you read, sales blogs and that sort of stuff, which I I have read a bunch of that stuff comes off very douchey to, to, to software developers. And so not having that and, and not doing that, I think has helped us in a number of ways. It makes us seem more genuine to the people that we meet. We don't grow as fast for sure. I'm sure that a sales team would help us grow faster, but I don't think that the relationships that we would gather would be as, as, as close knit um, as a small company, like a lot of our customers know us personally, have met us personally, we've interacted together at, at conferences or at events or online, or they watch our videos or something like that. But they, they have a relationship just as much as they have a relationship with track jazz. They have a relationship with me or Eric or Jordan. And they use us because they trust us as engineers. Um, and I think that makes for a really loyal um, customer base is that they know that like, they know the people who are building this, they know um, they have confidence that the system will be there and be around and be stable and do what they want. And they, they feel like they have an in because they do like they can, they, if they want something, if they see something that they'd like in the UI, they could email me directly and be like, hey, Todd, I love TrackJS. I'd be really awesome if we could do this, this, or this. And then we'll do that for them, if it makes sense. I mean, not all the time, but if it makes sense for, for like our vision of the platform and our balance of you know uh, maintenance, we'll do those things for them. And so having this close-knit kind of community around the product, uh, I think has been an advantage for us compared to, to other bigger players that rely on sales teams. And, and they, can, they can get bigger, but I don't think their customer base is very loyal. That's a really good point. So I feel like I have a million questions, but we do need to wrap up. I guess the, the last question I have for you is, like I said, there are a number of people who have their own projects who are maybe making some money from it or a decent chunk of money and might be thinking about sort of going your route, you know, like mm-hmm. making making their project um, into, you know, uh, even, even if it's just a side business, just getting, getting into the money side of things. Um, what advice would you have for that person who's got something that they think could be, you know, uh, could be a business, they've got a project that they think could really work out for people, what advice would you give for someone contemplating making that jump? The first piece of advice, which had to be taught to me, because uh, it wasn't what I expected as a developer, was that you need to run at revenue. Like, don't sit around like 
making your product free saying it's in beta. Don't like, don't like say, oh, here, this is, this is open source and we're just giving it away until we can figure out how to monetize it. Don't like, don't do that. Your first priority is to figure out how to get revenue. As a business owner, your first priority is like, I need dollars coming in so that I can prove that this is a value adding idea. And this isn't like a selfish, like capitalist evil concept. This is validation. This is about people are liars for, for good intentions. But like, if you go and you have this idea and you, you pitch your friends and colleagues and you say, hey, I have this idea for a widget maker and it'll like improve your widgets by all of these ways, would you buy it? Most of your friends will say, yeah, yeah, I'd buy that. That sounds great. Right. If you say, great, here's a credit card reader, let's do this a lot of those friends disappear. Like saying you, you like the idea and that you'd go is very, very different from actually committing dollars to it. And the people who will say that they would buy it but didn't actually buy it, they're gonna steer you in all kinds of bad directions. People who, who think there's value in it or might have peripheral value, they, they see like, oh, this is kind of a cool product but I really want it to be this other thing that is not your idea at all. They're steering you in, in, in different directions than where the money is at. You need to follow where, who are the people who see enough value in your idea that they're willing to put dollars on the line for it to get it. Those are the people who really value you, who, who, you, who would enable you to make a successful business off of. You need to find them and follow them. And the only way to do that is to run to revenue, is to like, be able to charge money for this thing that you want to do, reliably charge money, and follow the feedback and the recommendation of the people giving you money because they're the ones who are actually going to guide your product forward. Awesome. Now it's time to wrap up. Um, Takeaways. I'm going to let you go first. Might be the first time in the (laughs) history of the show that you've gone first. Um, Takeaways. As you sort of, you know, look back on the past years, start to finish, what do you come away with? Like, what is your overall feeling? What is your takeaway from going from contractor to TrackJS as it is today? I have been very fortunate to have been in the right positions with the right people and made the right preparations to be where I am today. But it's not all random luck. It's about putting yourself into a situation that when an opportunity comes along, you can jump at it. And when an opportunity presents itself, even if it's really scary, you have the courage to go after it. I think in a lot of our lives, and I'm saying that well aware that I have a number of like privileges in in life, but um, I think to some extent, uh, luck is, what's what's the old saying? Luck is like preparation and perspiration or something like that. You need to like, have worked yourself into a position where you can take advantage of an opportunity and then you need to really work really hard to pull that off. Um, I think that is the biggest lesson that I could share with somebody who's trying to, who wants to get into this situation is set yourself up for it. Even if you don't know what the idea is, you don't know who you're going to work with. Surround yourself with smart people. And, and work with them and learn from them and set yourself up for flexibility. Like don't, don't become so dependent on one organization or one job or one client that them going out or them restraining you is going to crush an opportunity. Set, your, set yourself up to be flexible and set yourself up with a good network. And then when the right opportunity comes along, there'll be nothing holding you back from jumping at it. That's awesome. 
my takeaway. Your takeaway. So my takeaway. So there have been various times over the past decade where people have suggested that I just do my blog full time. Yeah. Um, and for me, it's always been scary in that when you have a, I don't want to say corporate job, um, but when you have, when you have a traditional job that sets you up with, um, you know, insurance, retirement, um, that steady paycheck, mm-hmm. vacation time, um, you know, there's sort of an implicit, they implicitly make a lot of decisions for you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of leaving that world has always been incredibly scary to me. And the whole idea of getting to that moment, getting that where you're, where you can say, yes, I'm going to go do my own thing seems like an an incredibly scary moment. My takeaway is that like, if someone wants to take this side project and make it their main thing, um, the idea of consulting for a while in between, you know, quitting that corporate job and making, you know, their side project a business sounds like a really, really smart thing. It will allow you to set the hours um, that you'll be working and it might stop you from going and doing your side business if that lifestyle isn't for you. So it seems like a really nice transition step in between traditional job and making your project your own thing. And I think that in that time, you end up learning a lot of good lessons about, you know, your time management, um, how much things are going to cost, all of that stuff. It just seems like a really good transition. And it sounds like it worked out really well for you. Um, So I think that's my main takeaway. It's a good takeaway. I I would highly encourage people if they think that this, that the contracting life is interesting to, to look into it. Like it's, there's a lot of advantages to it. Um, it will force you to do things that you might not be entirely comfortable with. You'll have to learn about law and accounting and taxes and much more about personal finance than a corporate job teaches you to do because you're responsible for that. Um, and about marketing yourself and finding the right job and building a personal brand. And it's hard, but it's really rewarding. And it can teach you a lot about how the world really works. Excellent. All right, that's our show for today. Todd, thank you so much for sharing some of your your expertise and, and your experience. Hopefully that helps someone out there looking to More experience dive. than expertise, I think. Right. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, Yeah. Again, it's awesome. Hopefully people that are looking to dive into their own projects, learn something from it. We will see everyone again next week. I'm David Walsh blog. I'm Todd H. Gardner. See you next time. The script and style show is recorded and produced by David Walsh and Todd Gardner. We'll see you next time on Script and Style.